Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello, my name is Nicholas Badminton and welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast and today we're joined by Anne Boyson, who's a professional futurist and a pioneer in bringing research automation and data analytics into foresight. Uh, she teaches these methods at the University of Houston, where she also holds a master's in strategic foresight and graduate certificates in business analytics. She's also got extensive training in data mining and predictive modeling in Colorado State and Penn State universities. And I'm excited for this conversation. Hello, Anne, it's great to talk to you today. It's nice to talk to you. Can you uh, just give us a little bit of a rundown on the, the kind of uh, experience you've had over the last few years uh, as a professional uh, futurist and, and what you're up to these days? I graduated with a master's degree in, in strategic foresight from the University of Houston quite a, a long time ago. I won't say exactly when because I will be aging myself. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a far enough uh, time back that a lot of things have changed since then. A lot of methods have changed. And it's been uh, a time where I was able to feel my personal pain points in my professional career yeah. in terms of what types of tools were available and what could be used and what I, what I felt was needed to be done. So my background is mostly on studying uh, the human response to change more than change itself perhaps because very often you see the, the the big changes the big momentum to a trend really happens when many many people react in a certain way so you can have a new technology which is fascinating it could be a new scientific discovery it could be well and you know a disease outbreak and it's really the response to to those phenomena rather than the phenomena themselves that are important. So what I realized, I came from also a social science background. And what I knew was that, or what I noticed, I, I became humble very quickly because there's a lot of social science theories where you think that, you know, you, you account for a variable X, Y, and Z, and then you think of cluster people in different segments. And, and then you think of people having different character traits and, and you think you can sort of anticipate how they're going to act in, in different scenarios. Well, that's not always true. And, and people are fickle and they have idiosyncrasies and they're different and they're mixed up with all of these complex behaviors. So what I learned very quickly was if I'm going to study humans in the context of change, and I looked specifically at generational change, I really quickly understood the need for more data. It was very difficult to embark on that without having a very systematic data approach and a lot, a lot of data. I'm talking about longitudinal data. I'm talking about, you know, varied data, large enough samples, right? So it, it was a very humbling experience to knowing all the, all the things that I don't know. 
for me, it became more a, I think I went more into a trajectory of methods more than a domain relevance more and deeper more into the methods, which is sort of where I jumped into data analytics. Yeah, and, and a little bit more than, than just sort of wild speculation on this incredible future that we see on the horizon, right? Every speculation. I think that it's very important that we don't bind ourselves to methodology, that we have the, 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 the this is so unique for humans, that we're, we're able to think very creatively about change. We're able to think creatively around different scenarios. But at the same time, those scenarios are always way of form connected to the present. So even if the changes that we anticipate are very different from, from today, they may be antagonal to the, the current trajectory, but it's still a relationship to the present. So we define a very starkly disruptive future in relationship to what we have today. It might be starkly different, but it's, it's defined by where we are today. So this is, this is data-driven foresight. It's interesting you say about that, that creativity, speculative uh, futures approach as well, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's almost useless without some sense of, of today or even what's happened in the near past or even the, 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 the far past as well, right? The importance here is, again, not to do just traditional uh, time series forecast or even S-curve forecast, which, which in and by themselves are interesting because you, you can follow one particular trend and kind of anticipate when it's going to flatten out, for example. This is incredibly important right now that we have you know, uh, an epidemic going on. It's very important that we have the ability to forecast. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's also important to use the data-driven approach to foresee or to anticipate what might surprise us in the future so that we will look at anomalies, not just the trends we have today, but also the weak signals of something that could change in the future. Yeah, so I think it's very important because otherwise, if we don't have this very data-driven approach, it could be, if we hone in on, for example, just the trends that we are specialized in, you heard the, the uh, saying that if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So right. if you... If you only look at the trends within your nearest vicinity and you have sort of an idea about how that trend is going to, to unfold, you might kind of miss out on these weak signals and these anomalies that might actually play a very important part in that future that you're trying to anticipate. Yeah, and I want to really dive into this. As we were sort of preparing for this call and having that sort of uh, chat a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I find the idea of weak signals to be incredibly interesting when actually starting to look out um, to the near future, you know, the next you know, 18, 24 um, months, uh, 36 months or whatever, and out to like 10, 20, 30 years into the future as well. Can you just give us a bit of a definition of what a weak signal is and, and where we might start to look for them? So weak signals, I like to see a weak signal as different from a trend where a trend has, it already has past data, right? So a weak signal might also have a past data, but it's something that just now is jumping up on the horizon. It's just right. something that, at least to me, is new. And it, it, it could be, you know, old news to somebody else in a, in a, uh, in a subgroup or in, in an environment where that weak signal has been happening for a while but for me it's new and so it's very it's you you can't really there's no particular parameter that defines what a weak signal is 
But typically, the difference from a trend is that you don't have a lot of data points. You don't have longitudinal data. So you, don't, you can't necessarily say where it's on a, on a curve and, and exactly how it's going to unfold. There, it's a, typically when you go weak signal hunting, if you can call it that, yeah. uh, it's very driven by gut feeling. It's driven by um, you know, a lot of experience in looking for those weak signals. But again, as humans, we tend to have biases. We have selection biases. We have all sorts of cognitive biases that will color that approach no matter what it's we we are we, we don't know what we don't know and so when we go out on that hunt we might have a hunch on where we should look and a weak signal that could could lead to something bigger but at the same time we we might fall into that trap of not noticing what was really important or and this is actually more more common we might actually see patterns where there are no patterns because right. as humans, that has been our evolutionary uh, benefit is it, to see patterns where none exist. If you take it to the extreme, you know, this ability of humans to see patterns, conspiracy theories. I mean, that, that is the ultimate patternicity, right? Because it, you see pattern in everything. There's nothing that happens by coincidence. And again, you know, if you think about it, like evolutionary, we're very close to the cave persons that we used to be. So if you come out of the cave and you see something moving in the grass, it could be 99% chance that that is just the wind. But your inclination will be to run in the opposite direction because it could be a snake. <laughs> and if it was a snake, you know, you're dead. So, so it's, it's a benefit, but it's also when it comes to looking for signals and when it comes to looking for trends, it might actually um, carry some, some disadvantages as well. Conspiracy theories aside, because we, we come across them every day and, uh, and uh, whenever there's like pandemics or whether there's climate change or these huge hyper object events happening, they're always going to pop up. It seems like there's a symbiotic relationship. How do we go weak signal hunting, as you're saying? You know, what are the tools that you employ to, to go after finding these weak signals and where would you start? So I think there are different ways that you can... Uh, there are different clustering techniques, anomaly detection. There are associations. I mean, you see word association. Like right now, we have a lot of text available, and, right. and not only from experts. One, it's good to have expert opinion on things, but when you really look at the crowds and the swarms and how they're moving, you know, you can see how a a word is is moving around. You can run sentiment analysis to see if there's a shift in moods around certain topics you can see word associations so there's all sorts of approaches and uh, and you can see how some some weak uh, some barely mentioned words or uh, you know are, 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 are co-occurring with, with with other uh, more common uh, so you can just by proxy see you know who are talking about what and how are they responding there there are other data sets you if, you know uh, if you run a big company like Amazon, you could just look for weak signals in your data set. You can look at, you know, the anomalies in your own data set. Um, of course, that's, you know, most of the weak signals that we're going to find is going to be in unstructured data. So, and most people don't have that available to them. They don't have huge data sets, right? So you're going to yeah. have to look for it. You're going to have to crawl. You're going to have to look for it 
out there. But I, I'll give you a very good example um, of uh, where weak signals were found, and they were found by looking at these 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 mentions and these um, search search words. So what people actually put into their Google search engine or any other search engine for that matter, that can indicate what is happening uh, in a society. And there's a really good book that was written by Seth Steven Davidovitz, who was a, um, a data scientist at Google a few years ago. Right after the, a few years after the last recession, he uh, started stud studying patterns in, in what people are typing into the search engine because people don't lie to Google. And uh, some of it was actually pretty um, uh, disturbing because there was, and I was studying generational research at the time and how the uh, effect of the last recession impacted the younger generations. And one of, the, one of my hypotheses was, well, this is probably going to increase hardship and neglect and possibly even abuse for younger children because, you know, when the parents are getting laid off and losing their houses, you know, that, that's going to have an effect on children. Right. Uh, the the, the uh, established idea at the time was that, interestingly, in spite of all the hardships that, that, that people are going through, child abuse and neglect are continuing to fall. And I thought that was very strange. Now, now Davidovitz, what he found was that it, the search searches of dad is hitting me, why is dad hitting me, uh, these type of searches actually went up in areas that was the hardest hit by the recession. There wow. was another thing that went up there, and it was, or what went down was actually uh, funding to people in care positions. So funding to police, to uh, child protective services, to teachers, all of that was going down. So it's just that they weren't able to actually pick those up. So there was actually an, uh, a trend where, uh, where the established, the institutions that we have out there to scout for these different signals were underfunded, but, but the Google searches actually went up. So those you can call weak signals because, again, there are, they are out there. It exists. The data is out there, but it's not being picked up by the, um, by, by the institutions that we expect to pick that up. Yeah, and I guess we can we can look beyond, say, search engines, maybe even to like radio and television, uh, audio signals uh, outside of sort of the written word as well. It kind of makes me think about uh, how intelligence gathers data as well. It, it seems like that sort of intelligence service, in in the sort of a national security perspective, oh, yeah. is what we're is what we're trying to create within organisations to give them that advantage as well. Yeah, and so the creativity is really more about thinking of the sources of where we can find the data, you know. So, so it's, again, you know, data is everywhere, and especially now when almost everything is digitized. I would say that, you know, the problem right now possibly in a pandemic is you could see weak, signal in, weak signals in outbreaks of disease, but this is very often strongly correlated with uh, privacy there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers to get access to that data, but what's interesting is that these these pandemic that is going on right now, the COVID nineteen, uh, was actually picked up by an artificial intelligence called um, called Blue Dot. Oh. So Blue Dot uh, had noticed uh, some unusual pneumonia outbreaks in, in around a market in Wuhan, China, mm. and uh, that's actually how that all started. So so you know it, this really 
again, I think it is part of this is obviously because big systems can can parse a lot more data than we can do in our heads and run much more com complex Bayesian probability estimations and stuff. But it's also because they don't carry those biases and those preconceptions about what it thinks it should see, what it thinks it should notice. It can just parse the data and put it out there for us. It, it, it's kind of interesting uh, when, when you know, we, we're sort of uh, speaking now and, and uh, you know, the pandemic's well underway, as it were. And, and we're talking about this and these weak signals, it, it, you know, Blue Dot found that uh, th those weak signals. But what, what the precursor to the weak signals was actually very strong signals from, from history that we actually just, <laughs> just decided to suppress and not really pay attention to. There's been many, many different viruses that have come, av avian flus and swine-based flus and Ebola's. And even if you go back to the early 19th century and we wonder where the Spanish flu came from or whatever. But, you know, there, there, were, there's not, there weren't a lot of people sort of waving the flags. I think uh, Bill Gates did a, uh, a TED talk back in 2015 and, you know, it must have been like, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, Bill, cheers. Um, and, <laughs> and now we're sort of in the grips of this world, right? So how often do you find that there's some sort of, you know, big flags waving that people ignore, but the weak signals sort of are then starting to make things a lot more serious? I think that probably is more the rule than exception. And right. again, I think human psychology really plays a part here because, you know, you see what you want to see. You know right. what you want to know. So it, it, just to, to mention another, another uh, almost a black swan that unfolded now the last few weeks after this outbreak, the stock market. You know, I mean... Right. We, we call it the, the, the COVID recession, or I guess that's what we're going to call it in the future. But there has been talk about a looming recession for a long time. Yeah. And so it's, we, but, but then again, like how did, how did the market behave? Well, we kept on, we didn't want to sell up because oh, just a little bit more. What if it, exactly. the market goes on a limit? We don't want, we don't want to be prepared. And that's the thing. It's like we, we, human psychology is always playing a part and it's very difficult for us to sort of divorce our emotions from, from, from the, the signals that something is in fact changing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we do look to each other. It's like all the panic buying that's happening around the world. I've chatted to people in America, I've chatted to people in the UK and it's like, you know, shelves are being cleared and all, all of that. And it's very strong signals that there's fear in society. Are there, are there weak signals in there? I mean, it's difficult to see because absolutely no one has said that there's going to be a shortage of food or a shortage of, of toilet paper. But just from the very, very nature of people like bulk buying, they're almost uh, creating those weak signals that are going to become very real sort of shortages in the next sort of, I don't know, I'm completely speculating here, the next two to six months, right? Yes. Well, yeah, well, that is, uh, I guess that's, that's the natural effect of panic buying. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's warm behaviors. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. earlier on, you were sort of saying about your generational research. And I find that to be incredibly interesting. You know, as we look all the way from like, you know, Gen, Gen Z to uh, millennials, uh, Gen Xers, uh, through to through to baby boomers as well. How, how does 
How does that whole generational difference play into the whole world of foresight and also finding these, these weak signals? So generational differences are just one type of uh, cohort differences or, dip or, or, or variables that typically social scientists are paying attention to because right. you can, you have many demarcations. You can, you can look for differences in, in gender, in uh, geography based, in socioeconomics and education. There's all sorts of uh, divisors, right? There's all sorts of ways of, of looking at differences. Um, and of course now, again, I think that the fact that we're starting to use more um, cluster-based, more vector-space approaches with, uh, with you know, Euclidean distances between data points, mm. uh, where you can actually measure, uh, it, it, we don't have to kind of come up with these segmentations. I think that's starting to take a little bit over so we, can, we don't have to really you know, predefine people based on these these easy pegs like gender or 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 um, generations. But marketers have done this for ages, right? I mean, they've been doing that to try to find which are my what's my target group, where is the group that I want to sell my products to. Now, now we have more data driven approaches. But from a foresight perspective, looking at generational differences are still in a category in myself because. It is one way of understanding change. I'm not right. saying it's the only way, but one way. And for me, again, being one who looking, uh, who tries to spend more, more of my time looking at the response to change rather than the change themselves, looking at the social response to change, I feel that generational responses are important because it's one of those um, momentum, it's one of those uh, one, one of those uh, approaches that show when you have a shift in something. It's, it's one of those approaches where one group of people may react in a completely different way than another group. And we need to know in what way that is. Because be, simply because when you have a new generation entering a new life stage, there, there, there's a whole there's a lot of people that the change happens all at once instead of having, mm. if you look at how women are contrary to men, which again is a gross, you know, oversimplification, but these tend to be more stable, right? Because you're talking about two different categories that you can, that it's not defined by time, but generational shifts are defined by time. So right. you're looking at different epochs. You're looking at different eras. If you see that change now, that being said, I will be the first one to say that patternicity is a huge problem in generational foresight because uh, we tend to want to see differences where there really are none. And in most respect, most generations are, you know, just going through life stages and going through life changes. But there, there is that factor of being born in one particular time that on some level will play itself out um, uh, based on based on your generation more than you know which life phase you're in so we typically talk about three different effects you yeah. have uh, the age effect which again you know if you are 20 year old so if you do a survey and you compare 20 year olds to 40 year olds you're obviously going to get different results because they're in different life phases um, 
how much of that is generational? Well, the only way to find out is if you can, you can compare those results with a survey that was done 20 years before, right? Um, with the same questions. The problem is you also have something called period effect, and that is that we are all responding to change a similar way. So 40-year-olds uh, and 20-year-olds at one specific point in time is going to have a lot of similar responses mm. to, to events that happen at that time. So it's, it's enormously complex, and that's, that's where you see where all the data comes in. Why it's important to study a lot of data. Um, but it's the main reason that that's important for futurists is so that we can have sort of like a, a, a um, course idea of, or a, a general idea of, of where, when, how a large group of people are going to do things differently as they're entering a new life phase. And, and really, what's really interesting to me about that as well is if, if you might say, you know, an older generation versus a younger generation versus, uh, you know, an infant generation, say, uh, or, you know, call them Gen Y, Millennial, Gen X and, uh, <clears throat> and Boomers, right? I, I sort of wonder what lives between them as well, because there seems to be these tensions. So the tensions and the disagreements between generations, can they, can they be seen as weak signals in this? situation yes I, I i think it is uh there's uh there's tensions there yeah there's definitely signals to be picked up in those uh in those tensions um, i think one one particular weak signal at the moment is possibly this new hashtag that is going around called boomer remover or boomer doomer or even boomer plague mm. with reference to this the virus because it has a higher mortality rates among older people. Now, it's very important to see that in a, in a wider context because it's important to remember the last crisis that sort of preceded this, and that was not that long ago since it came into our, our um, public um, conscious that, uh, consciousness that we, we might have only 10 years more uh, to... to make some drastic changes to the way that we are living our lives unless we're going to unleash some runaway effect of climate change. Right. And that spurred a, a generational conflict where you had the teenagers on the one hand and the young people on the one hand holding older generations responsible for not only having caused a lot of these problems that they're dealing with today, but also being unwilling to, to actually do something about it. Um, and to even mock those uh, younger teenagers who are who are on the forefronts, um, even you know going through some ad hominem attacks on Greta Thunberg. I'm thinking of specifically here. Yeah. Um, and and so this this happened. It's not that long ago since all of this happened, and that really sort of deepened the fault lines between these generations. So and you know closely after that, you had this hashtag called OK Boomer. You know, remember mm. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that was a weak signal that uh, th there's a tension here. And, uh, and you know, it, for now, the, you have the older generations in charge. But as soon as they are challenged with something that harms their generation specifically, which now happens to be this virus, but in 10 years from now, it's going to be that they're going to be 
you know, uh, in, in a far more feeble position because they, they're going to age out of these, these parent positions that they have today. If there is, a, if there's some sort of, you know, vengeance looming in younger generations because they hold these older generations accountable for literally, you know, destroying their world, at least that's the way they perceive it, then we're looking at some, some problems in the future. And we don't know exactly how that could play out, but it's, uh, it's definitely a weak signals of, you know, uh, uh, something that could play out in political priorities in the future, in meditating, in, in geriatric, who knows? I mean, yeah, and we, we, we spoke about like the future systems view and that sort of plays into the mix here as well. When I look at things like pandemics or climate change, economic stress, I see them as part of the same universe uh, with interlinking, you know, com complex interlinking parts and, yeah. and, and it feeds each other. But oftentimes when we, when we study these things, we choose just to look at a pandemic or just to look at climate change or just to look at economic stress. And there are experts and, you know, professional futurists or uh, professors or whoever that are domain experts. But it seems like that siloed approach is, is sort of causing a, a bit of a problem with the insights that we need to, to generate a, a more holistic view of the future. I mean, what, what would you say around that and the idea of an overall futurist systems view? Yes, I find it interesting because it is uh, you're, you're really uh, correct in addressing the systems view because no trend happens in isolation of any, something else. And what, what happens in one part of the system is going to have an, some effect in another part of the system. Yeah. So again, if we kind of, again, look, look at these two trends at the same time, the, on the one hand, you have it looming ecological disaster, something that needs to be mitigated now in order to prevent its most dire consequences. Well, we're kind of forced to enact on that now, not by, uh, not by treaties or not by um, political decisions, but actually by our own fear. Uh, look, at, look at how, you know, air, air, airline travel is, is down now, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's uh, cruise ships are down now. Uh, there are, if you saw the picture released by NASA and the, the, the whole area of Wuhan, China, the before and after picture, and you look at the, the air pollution, it's completely almost vanished now. Uh, there are, they're talking of, um, you know, uh, places in Venice where the water used to be, all the algae would be coming up and look dirty and, and, and nasty. And now you can see the fish again, you know, they're, they're kind of seeing these changes and that might be some of the changes that are uh, the, the lack of mobility and the, the emphasis on having to do things locally, the, the emphasis on having to curb our desire for travel, uh, for being physically present at different places, for having a high production rate of, of consumer goods that we might not even need. Um, perhaps this crisis is teaching us to do more with less. And, and I think it's particularly interesting because on the one hand, it's true that we are, we're very inert. We don't want to change when we don't have to change. Right. But when we are forced to change, we are so creative and uh, adaptable in many ways. I'm looking at these videos that are coming, being posted now in social media of these homebound people in Italy and Spain as they're going out on their 
I don't know if you've seen that, how they're going out. I have, yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're having these jam sessions. You know, it, it's kind of like we're learning how to be neighbors again, right? <laughs> so, so there, you know, there's a silver lining possibly. I don't know. It's, uh, I feel a change in one part of the system, again, it's creating a consequence in another part. And sometimes that might be exactly what we need to solve the problem that we first set out to solve. Yeah. So. And, yeah, and for me, it, okay, this humanity that's flourishing in the middle of, 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 of you know, a very serious situation is yes. huge, hugely inspiring. However, there's this looming specter of politics that sort of hovers over everything, trying to sort of organize humanity into, into its buckets, right? Into, its, right. In, in, into Overton windows of, of policy and, and agreement. Right. So I, 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 I've been doing some vlogs right now and, and one of them was around politics. Uh, and really, you know, this agenda of closing borders, uh, restricting travel uh, and, you know, looking to other nations around the world for where blame might be, be laid uh, yeah. actually, play, actually plays into a pretty horrible nationalistic agenda for, for many politicians. I mean, what we need to do now is actually have that open mind about some of the, some of those lessons that we can take from what's happening right now beyond like, Hey, you know what? These businesses can flourish if we all work from home. Yeah. And, and, and into that world of like, Oh, you know what? Climate change has changed. X amount of airlines have gone out of business. You know, whilst there's less choice, there's fewer routes and whatever, you know, mm. hu human movement around the world is, is restricted. I think, I think there was a stat that I've used in some of my keynotes where it's something like 500,000, flights happening per day <laughs> all over the world and if you go to any sort of u.s airport I, I remember being in phoenix airport and it was like a it was like a zoo it was crazy it was like people everywhere it was like a tuesday morning and yeah. it's like we, we we've sort of we've been thrust into this capitalist world where you know this kind of travel is normal whereas maybe you know 30 years ago it was it was pretty it was a pretty extreme thing to do to decide to you know jump on a plane more than three times a year and now people do it in a week right yeah yeah and that's exactly perhaps who knows i mean if we get out of this in a few months that probably too short time to really change our behaviors but if it if the consequences of this last long enough for us to really have to rethink how we're we're organizing our everyday life and how we are organizing our education and our our businesses we might learn something from this and we might even learn, I don't know, this is what wide, wild speculation, but the businesses that are best prepared to, to, to have these digital, to deal with this in a digital way that has this digitized problem solving route where they don't have to send people around the world. So they're, they're obviously going to respond better to it. And that might possibly level the playing field a little bit. So we'll see yeah. winners and losers. I, I see all these prepper companies coming up, you know, where companies that I have never heard before, I didn't know that they were existing. Suddenly now they're, they're, they're popping up in my view. So it's, it's totally changing the, the playing field and which businesses are doing well and which are not. Yeah, I, I was speaking to uh, some some construction companies down into the states. It was like two years ago, and I started telling them about 
um, the bunkers that were being sold, you know, the, the prepper bunkers. And they were like, what? And it's like, yeah, these businesses are booming. These, you know, <laughs> people are expecting it to happen. There's a, there's a justification to all the people that have been like hoarding food and prepping for this. And they're sort of locked in their basements with, you know, with various weaponry and, uh, and canned goods. And they're good for, I don't know, like three or four years, I guess. But I, I want to bring us back. I want to bring us back to what we were talking about. And this is, you know, data-driven foresight, the idea of finding weak signals. And, and th these aren't capabilities that are, are, are widely used in the majority of businesses around the world. Uh, maybe some of the more enlightened businesses uh, are using this. But how would, how would you sort of uh, give advice to an executive looking at their organization and thinking, hey, you know what? We need to get on top of this. We need to be more data-driven. We need to find these weak signals because they're going to help us determine you know, how our business is going to grow and, and what it's going to be in the future. You know, what, what sort of, uh, are there sort of uh, words of wisdom or steps that organizations should take to, to become uh, more data-driven and ready to find those weak signals? So I think the first and most important is to break up the data silos. Don't, don't think that because you have one, one department having one, collecting one type of data, thinking that that data only has validity for their particular uh, task at hand. Uh, that, that data, might, you might actually find insights in that data that you didn't realize even. So first of all, find a way to put all these data sources together uh, and, and run analytics on on your existing data, your your structured data, and then it's to find ways to um, look for unusual data sources outside. And of course, now everything is online, everything is digital. People are gladly sharing their opinions and 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 even in the form of pictures and images. Um, so to have the you know to fine tune those tools, or if you don't have those tools and you don't have the approaches. Contact someone who, who, who do and uh, use the help that you can get to, to, to make use of that data because that is really going to position you not only for the next quarter or the next two quarters, but several quarters out. And this might be the perfect timing to do that because now that everything is changing, uh, now we're in you know, this disruptive change, uh, whether we want to or not, it, it might be the time to really look out of the, the typical data forest that you used to spend your time in and, and look elsewhere. Um, but yeah, make use of unstructured data. So unstructured data is at least 80% of all possible data sources that you can use. So if you just limit yourself to what you have in your internal organization, uh, we'll start there. But when, when you have exhausted that, it's, it's time to, to, to go further and look, look out those sources. That's incredible. And I, 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 that's great advice. And I, you know, I've worked in data for the majority of my, my professional life and, and helping build, you know, those, those brought together data warehouses, analytical warehouses and the, and the such like. And it's not easy. It costs a lot of money, but the benefit can, can really be realized very, very quickly if you do it right. But I also think that this is a huge opportunity for organizations to come to, to people like you and people like myself and other professional futurists out in the world to help them <laughs> really get a grasp on what's happening in the world to maybe say, hey, here are the top 10 weak signals that we're seeing. Um, some of these may not become anything that, that's to, to, to be paid attention to, but here are some that if, if they do hit, are going to have a huge impact to your business as well. 
Right. No, absolutely. You're so right. And, you know, I think, you know, and the cost there that you mentioned, I think that's very important too, because I think there are a lot of smaller businesses out there who are thinking, well, I don't, I don't have those big data repositories and, and I certainly cannot, you know, uh, put in the money to, to, to transform it to a way that I can actually use it. And that's fully understandable, but that, that's precisely when possibly it's using external sources, using external um, companies that can help you because they can possibly pull together some insights from other data uh, exactly. and, and, and pull that together. I, I kind of miss that. A, uh, um, almost said a communal crowdsourcing effort to pull together anonymous data that can, can be used like a, a software as a service for smaller businesses that they can tap into this without necessarily owning the repository, but be able to see what's going on in their own industry. So, yeah. um, but in the absence of that, I definitely would advise them to, to make use of data scientists, make use of, of, of futurists to, to help them see what is on that horizon because it's, uh, the, the, old, the old methods may not be up to par. So I think that that's an absolutely fantastic place to wrap up. I'd like to thank you very much. This is Anne Boyson talking to me, Nicholas Bampton, on the Exponential Minds podcast. And uh, we'll make sure that we, we spread this message far and wide. And Anne, I'd like to thank you so much for your time today in, uh, in what is uh, proven to be a very interesting time in the world. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciated you having me here. Okay, thank you. Thanks.